Father, in the silence of our own hearts, we just open our hearts to you and ask that you would speak to us, that you would reveal your beauty and your love for us. Lord, we thank you for the promise that you, when you send your word, it always accomplishes what you send it for. So we ask that your word would speak to our hearts in new and fresh ways, ways that changes our lives in practical ways so that we can have a deeper, more intimate fellowship with you, the God who loves us more than his own existence. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. I'd like to invite you to stand with me. Go ahead and just stand up if you're, if you're able this morning. Hopefully you're feeling kind of limber. What we're going to do is a little exercise where I just want you to ponder something. You may have to go back to your high school days and thinking about this, but I want you to think about what is true love. I want you to think about how could you know that you are experiencing true love? What does it look like specifically in this way? What is the numerical value of people involved in love? What is the, the, the minimum number of people involved in a relationship in order for there to be love? So what I'm going to do is you get to sit down as soon as you think that that is the minimum number of people, number of persons in order to have love. So can there be love with one? All right, I see a few sat down. So there could be love with one. More sitting down. Maybe if we keep going, more will sit down. (laughs) Some stood back up. All right. (laughs) That's okay. This is something you may not have thought about before, but just imagine being that high school kid who doesn't have a girlfriend, who who doesn't know who they're going to marry. Is it possible to have love by yourself? All right. So how many of you think that there could be love if there was two of you? Right? So now you have that girlfriend, now you have that spouse, now you have that opportunity for... The, man, some of you are brave, you're still standing. <laughs> There's only a few. Okay, we can count how many people are still standing and they're, they're, they're melting. And some of them are just sitting down purely because of peer pressure this morning. <laughs> right? Some of you that are sitting, I know that you don't believe it. Right? How many of you think that it just takes three, you can sit down? Three persons. All right? Some of you are going to go more. Four? Five? Okay, tell us how many, Steve. Beautiful. Infinite love requires an infinite number. I like that. Anybody else want to share? You don't have to. I just knew he'd be brave enough to share because he often has nuggets of wisdom. I want you to open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8. 1 John chapter 4 in verse 8. You know, in the Bible you find that God isn't revealed in the way that we can picture and grasp what he looks like. There's glimmers of it. There's, there's what we call anthropomorphisms where people try to use human language to describe what God's glory looks like. But, but God is, if you were to draw a, a circle and you had in that circle the universe, you had all of creation, you had everything that that we know physically, would you put God inside of that box? No, because last week we saw Genesis 1 verse 1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That lets us know that that God created all of these things. So 1 John 4 verse 8 tells us something about God. It says this, 
He who does not love does not know God. For God is love. You see why it's crucial that we understand how many persons are involved in order to have love. What is the minimum requirement of people involved in order to have love? What does love even look like? 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 5 tells us that love does not seek its own. So when we're talking about love, we're not just talking about that love that 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 high school kid has for that high school girl because she's really cute and she loves him back. It's love that does not seek its own. Love that isn't in it for itself. So if you really think about it, can you really have love with just one person? If you're just by yourself. There's no object to which to have other-centered love, right? How about if there were two people? You've experienced it before. Have you seen where two people fall so in love that they no longer know that you exist? Have you been around that? And you've heard where it says three's a crowd because to be around them, you feel totally left out of the loop. Have you experienced that before? Two can be actually self-absorbed in their love. It's possible to love somebody just because of the love they give back to you. And when there's two and you're just focused on each other, then you may not have true love. But turn with me to Genesis chapter 1 again, looking at creation. Last week we saw how the Spirit of God was moving on the waters and that, that it was strange because there's darkness, there's emptiness, it's, it's without form and void and But yet the Spirit is moving and the Spirit brings hope. And in the same way in our hearts, when we are going through rough times, we can trust that the Spirit will bring hope into our lives and bring light into our lives. But Genesis chapter 1, and we'll look at verse 26. This is God speaking. It says this, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. Then God said, let, what does it say? Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. This is fascinating. This is a conversation. Up to this point, God has been speaking and things have been happening. God has spoken and there's light. God has spoken and there's the firmament. God has spoken and and things have come into existence. And all of a sudden you find that there's this conversation going on. God is talking to God. Last week we looked at John chapter 1 and maybe it gives us a little bit of a picture here. It says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and everything was created through Him. You see what it's really saying? We could almost paraphrase it and say, in the beginning was God, and God was with God, and God was God. Right? Does that make sense? If we were to paraphrase it, we could basically say that God was with God, and God was creating things. What did this look like? Let us make man in our image. What, what is God up to here? What is God's purpose here? Why is this sudden, this, this plurality mentioned here? In fact, even if you were just to look at the Hebrew word for God here, it's the word Elohim. Not just El for God, but Elohim for God's in plurality. It's, it's the idea of more than one. Not more than one God, but more than one person. There's a conversation going on here. What is this conversation like? Go with me to, to Proverbs chapter 8. Proverbs chapter 8, I picture, is as something that, that gives us a little glimmer of what this conversation might have been like. 
If you look at Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 30, it says, Then I was beside him as a master craftsman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. Now we see in this proverb, it's, it's wisdom literature, so it's difficult to parse out exactly what's going on here. But we see in here a, a picture of Jesus here. And, and Jesus and the Father are working together on creation. And what does it say, who is the Father's delight? I was his delight. Jesus says, I was, he was delighting in me. If you go to Isaiah chapter 42, Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 1. It says this, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him and I will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. This is talking about Jesus and this is God the Father saying, I what in Jesus? I delight in Jesus. There's this friendship there. There's this intimacy there. There's this community there, if you will, that is delightful, that is enjoyable. So here's the question. Then why does God create? If you think about it, you have eternity past, and and God has been with God, and we saw the Holy Spirit there. So you have the Holy Spirit, you have Jesus, you have God the Father throughout eternity rejoicing in this delightful fellowship with the three of them. You have this perfect love. God is Love. Without this plurality of our God, you cannot have a God who is love. But you have this throughout eternity past, and you wonder, well, why did God create? Why not just go on enjoying who you are? Why not just go on enjoying who you are having this fellowship with? Look over in chapter 43 of Isaiah. God tells us why He created Isaiah chapter 43 and verse 7, it says this, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for what? My glory. I have formed him. Yes, I have made him. What is the purpose that you were created for? It's not a rhetorical question. What's the purpose that God created you for? For his glory. Now let's be honest. Does that sound a little bit arrogant? You think about this and you think, okay, so the reason that I exist is to bring glory to God. Let me give you an illustration. I'm going to put up a picture of something that happened exactly 3,800 days ago today. 3,800 days ago today... I'll hopefully get this picture up on the screen of what happened. It was a few hours actually less than 3,800 days ago because this was at about, I don't know, what would we say, about 3.45 p.m. You know how weddings go. They don't always start right on time. It was supposed to start at 3, but it started close. So this is an amazing day where two become one flesh. Love was happening in our lives. And I believe that that love has happened in such a, a beautiful way in our relationship because God has promised that when we delight ourselves in Him that a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. But you know, time went on and about four years after this, Leah and I were talking. We were finishing our time at the seminary and she began to say something to me that I thought, 
am I not enough? <laughs> I, I mean, you married me. I thought we were in love. We have love in our home. Oh, what are you talking about? She began to say, well, shouldn't we work on having kids? <laughs> shouldn't, it, wouldn't it be a good idea to have kids? This was about six years ago. Why go through the process of having a child who's going to now take some of your wife's love away from you? I actually had a girlfriend who told me that. She would tell me, if we got married and you, we have kids, you won't love them more than you love me, will you? She was really worried about this. You wouldn't share that love to such a... Uh, she was so self-absorbed that she wanted to know I would love her more than the kids. That wasn't the way that Leah was thinking. She's thinking, we want to share this love that we have with others. I want you to look at something that is in the Truth Link study guide, something that Ty Gibson has written, a fascinating study guide. It says this, three is the minimum numeric value of pure love. Where there is only one person, love cannot occur. Where there are two, each is the sole recipient of the other's attention, giving potential for self-centeredness. Does that make sense? We kind of went through that. This two can't really have an other-centered, selfless love. But the moment there are three, each recipient must also humbly defer attention to the third party. And each one must occupy the position of the third person to the other two. Pure selflessness can now occur by virtue of the fact that each one must love and be loved with both an an exclusive and a divided interest. You can now have a, a community where true love is happening in a selfless way where you're delighting in the fact that these two other persons love each other. Imagine that when you have a child, that's the way it is. That you, you're so delighted that, that, that your wife loves this child so much that she would give her life for that child. It's something that, that endears your heart to her more and, and your heart to your child as you see this, this love that is shared. Pure selflessness can occur by virtue of the fact that each one must love and be loved with both an exclusive and a divided interest. Then notice this. If the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were not eternally coexistent, it could not be said with any coherence that God is love. You know, when we believe things, like we believe in it, the triunity of God, the Trinity, the idea that there are three co-eternal persons, and we say, well, that's good. What is, what's the importance of this? It is vitally foundational to our grasp of why we exist, of our purpose on this planet. You notice that God is saying, let us make man in our image. There's this this, this idea that there's, there's a plurality of people who are going to go ahead and make another plurality. Go back to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28, verse 27. Then God created man in his own image. The image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So you see the, the plurals that are used here. Let us make in our image, in our likeness, them. God has a purpose here of bringing together community. This is how beautiful God is. 
God throughout eternity has had this delightful communion that we call love in that God is able to experience this selfless love within the Trinity. But for God, He loves to give so much that He didn't want to stop there. He delights so much in relationship. He, didn't want, he wanted for you to be able to experience the same thing. That's why Ephesians chapter 1 says that He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us. God adopted us as children. He chose you because He wanted to be with you. Isn't that beautiful? We all desire relationship. If you doubt this, just think about today. Who are the CEOs that have risen to financial success the quickest lately. Most of them are in the area of something called social media. Have you noticed that? You think about Mark Zuckerberg. When he started Facebook, did he start something brand new? In that, did he begin relationships? He was just tapping into something that he knew is absolutely core to what we want in our lives. We all desire connection. We all desire relationship. We all desire this intimate fellowship where we are able to experience a selfless, other-centered love. It's delightful. It's beautiful. It's something that that God wants for us to experience. So we began to to talk about this, Leah and I. Well, we should go ahead and, and, and start this process. Well, if you fast forward, it's been six years and time has gone on and We've shared with you a little bit of our journey that it didn't happen like we thought. We thought that right away there would, there would come a child and that, that we would immediately be able to start a family. But why continue? Why continue to go on and to want something more in your family? Why would God create knowing that there would be so much work involved? <laughs> knowing that this planet would be such a mess that you would have the problems that He has to take care of, that, that He would have to convince you of His love, that why go ahead with all of that? Because He loved you. He delighted in you. Just notice what John chapter 17 tells us about what Jesus says. John chapter 17. Jesus is, this is in His high priestly prayer before going to the cross. John chapter 17 In verse 24, he's praying to the Father, and this is what conversations between God are like. In the beginning, he said, let us make man in our image. Here he's saying this, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. You see how God loves to get people together. He wants fellowship. He can't wait to pull people in. He can't wait to be together with you. This morning we talked about in the Hispanic group because it's a day of prayer and fasting for our Hispanic brothers and sisters. Pray for them. They're fasting and praying today and we pray that God leads them through. But did you know that Jesus has said, I'm not going to partake of this, this grape juice anymore until the kingdom of heaven. In a way, he's... he's He's giving this, this idea that he cannot wait to be with you. That's what's on Jesus' heart this morning. I just want to be with you. I want that close, intimate fellowship. I want to be with you. 
Father, I desire that they may be with me where I am. This is the heart of Jesus for you. And friends, if you have any other picture, it's not the picture that God has given you. There's an enemy who's come in, who seeks to deceive us, who came into the garden. Did you know that the word Eden means pleasure or delight? God gives them this delightful place, this beautiful place, and then he gives them this one little check in order to enable them to withhold from selfishness, in order to have other-centered love. And they chose to eat of the fruit of that tree because they bought a lie. And the same liar on that day has continued to seek to deceive us, to seek to, to think that Jesus has something else that he's withholding from us, and to begin to grasp after stuff that he's told us isn't good for us. You know, we can talk about God being love and that, that the essence of our lives is for, for us to love, but what does that really look like? This past week, we had an example where love might have been misconstrued or misused. Did you all notice the news about what the Pope had to say and how everybody got really excited about it? He, he said basically to somebody who had been abused that, that God had created him gay and that God loved him that way and that it was okay. And basically it sounded like, and we, it's obviously a private conversation that we don't know all the details, but go ahead and live that life because God is good with it. There's a difference when you're a parent between love that guards a child, that helps a child, that does everything to embrace a child, and that that lets them know that they're loved. But he's right, God does love that person. And we all should love that person. We had a beautiful weekend with with Coming Out Ministries just a a weekend or so ago. And if you missed the documentary and you'd like to watch it, I'd love to get you a copy of it that you could watch. It's a beautiful picture of how much God loves those who have deep struggles in their lives. But then to go on, do I love my child if I let them just go ahead and touch the stove that's going to hurt them? (laughs) Run out in the street where they might get hit by a car? That's not true love. Love has boundaries that help a person into the wholeness of all that God has designed for them. I want to look at something here that a, a, a professor of mine at Andrews University wrote. Here we have God saying, let us make man in our image. What is the image of God? What does it mean that you have been created in the image of God? This is a fascinating book that uh, Dr. Richard Davidson has written, The Flame of Yahweh. It's a, it's a really thick book. I encourage you to get it if you, if you get a chance, but you may not want to read straight through it. Just use it as a reference work. But he says something fascinating talking about the image of God. Flame of Yahweh is a book where he goes through each of the passages in the Old Testament having to do with sexuality. You think about the, the beauty of how God has designed you and I. That, that the most intimate act of a married couple's life, the, the time when they are closest, when they are most vulnerable, is the very time when life is created. It's also one of the most joyful times, or should be one of the most joyful times. God could have chosen any way for life to go on being reciprocated. He could have chosen us to have an asexual way of perpetuating the human race. 
But instead, he chose to have this delightful, beautiful experience where there's vulnerability, there's closeness, there's intimacy in order for life to be perpetuated. Maybe it's to give us a little glimmer of the heart of God. The God who had everything to delight in, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had this beautiful, delightful communion. But they said, let's create. Let's share this love. Let's add others into this. Let's bring others into fellowship with us. Let's make this even more. I like Steve's answer. An infinite number. God wants as much love as possible. So in the first few chapters of this book, Richard Davidson writes this. The image of God is primarily a relational concept. We can go ahead and get this up on the screen. From Flame of Yahweh. The image of God is primarily a relational concept. Does this make sense? He says, let us make man in our image. Let's create them. And the man and the woman were created in God's image. Ultimately, we do not reflect God's image on our own, but in relationship. Thus, the the imago Dei, that's it's, um, the, the image of God, basically, is not primarily what we are as individuals. Rather, it is present among humans in relationship. In a word, the image of God is found in human community. This is God's goal. This is God's destiny for you and I, is that we experience relationship and community. And you might be thinking... Wait, but I'm not married, and I don't have this relationship. This is really awkward, so I can never experience the image of God? Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. The enemy seeks to blind us in so many ways to the glorious gospel of all that Jesus wants us to experience in Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and we'll begin reading in verse 3. 2 Corinthians, sorry, actually chapter 4 and verse 3. But even if our gospel is veiled, using language from the previous chapter about Moses, who had seen the glory of God, his face is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose mind the God of this age has blinded. The enemy doesn't want you to see something. The enemy doesn't want you to see the glorious gospel, the beauty of who God is and what he has designed for your life. He doesn't want you to experience this beautiful fellowship that God has designed Reality is fundamentally social. God has designed this universe in such a way that relationship is at the core of all of reality. That's why God is love. That's who God is in essence, and that's what he has designed for us to be able to experience. Whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God, should shine on them. Who is the image of God? Who is the image of God? Jesus. Hebrews 1 says the same thing. He's the express image of God. Jesus is God in human flesh. Jesus has finally given us this picture of the image of God restored in man. That image that was defaced. Because while we were created to enjoy love and fellowship, we were created that that I could put you first and you could put me first and and we could put others first and, and we would have this loving relationship. God 
designed that things would stay that way, but an enemy came in which marred that picture in our hearts, which transformed us to be selfish beings, where it's just not natural anymore. I mean, this sounds good, doesn't it? Who wouldn't want to live in a world where everybody's looking out for you and that you're looking out for others and you have this beautiful picture of love? And yet, our hearts have been twisted from this and we've begun to not be able to experience this. But this tells us that Jesus is the image of God. And was Jesus married? These aren't rhetorical questions. Was Jesus married? Jesus wasn't married. And if you today are sitting here thinking, well, great, I can never be in the image of God. In Christ, you can experience the fullness of God. In Christ, you can be filled with the Holy Spirit. You can experience Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You can be brought in to that fellowship. Back in John chapter 17, we didn't finish verse 24. Hold your finger here because we're coming back here. John chapter 17 Jesus finishing that verse in verse 24. John 17 and verse 24. He said, Father, I desire that those also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, that they may behold, what does it say? My glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. You see, the glory of God, the purpose that He has designed for you and I is to be immersed in that love that was from the beginning. The glory of God is the love that was shared Father, Son, and Holy Spirit throughout eternity. And God wants to invite us into the same experience. If you look down in verse 26, And I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. That's why when Moses said on the mountain, God, Please, show me your glory. I want to see you. What do you look like? God doesn't just walk past him and show him the, the figures and forms of what he looks like, but he says, I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock and I'll declare my name to you. I'm the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, abounding in loving kindness and truth, forgiving iniquity and sin, and by no means clearing the guilty. He's a God of justice. He's a God of love. He's a God who cares about the details of your life. He cares about what you're going through this morning. And He wants to be involved in the details. He wants to help you in every situation that you're facing. Continuing in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it goes on, if we look, last week we read verse 6, it says, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Then Paul begins to describe some of the experiences that he's had in his life. He says, we hold this treasure in an earthen vessel. We're hard-pressed on every side, verse 8, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. Paul knew what it was like to go through tough times. Paul knew what it was like to be stoned. He knew what it was like to be shipwrecked. He knew what it was like to be beaten with rods. He knew what it was like to go through rough times in life. But he also knew what it was to have the image of God recreated in him. If you go down to verse 14, or sorry, verse 16. Therefore we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, Yet the inward man is being renewed 
day by day. The inward man, this image of God, is being restored in us day by day. Each and every day in a fresh way, this this renewal is taking place of the original purpose that God designed you for, to live in loving fellowship with other human beings. This is the ultimate goal of the gospel. This is what God has designed us for. If you look, uh, there's, in the book Education, page 15, it says this, To love Him, the infinite, the omniscient One, with the whole strength and mind and heart means the highest development of every power. It means that in the whole being, the body, the mind, as well as the soul, the image of God is to be restored. To love God with all of our hearts, with all of our soul, with all of our strength. This is what it means to have the image of God restored in us. This is what it means to become like God. To again have that love flowing out of our hearts. Romans 5 verse 5 says, Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in your hearts through the Holy Spirit who's given to you. You might be sitting here today with challenges that you're going through. This past week, you might have faced things that were difficult. Notice what it said in 2 Corinthians 4.16. We don't lose heart even though our outward man is perishing. That doesn't sound very good, does it? Our outward man is perishing. You know, something began to happen to me a little bit uh, a a week and a half ago. Uh, I, I started to get this rash. Wasn't sure what was happening. I don't know if you've had a rash before, um, but this one was kind of painful, but at first I thought, well, it'll just go away. About a week later, it wasn't going away. It was getting a lot worse, and, and Leah said, you know what? We got to do something about this. Let's go to the doctor. And so we went to the doctor. God worked it out in an amazing way that we were able to go to the doctor the next day, which is really difficult to do in Templeton, I'm learning. We went to the doctor the next day, and as we went to the doctor, he's like, oh, you have shingles. I'm only 33, am I? 34 years old, something like that. I have shingles? I thought that was for 60 plus year olds. Why do I have shingles? What's going on? The outward man is perishing. (laughs) You get it more than I do, I imagine. You've been through stuff in your life. You're going through stuff. You may be sitting here in pain this morning, but there's good news for you. Though the outward man is perishing, don't lose heart because God is renewing the inward man Day by day. How does that take place? Look back at verse 18 of chapter 3. It says, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Not, Not beholding just some majesty, some light, some power. But when we behold the glory of God, we're beholding the beauty of of unselfish love that was throughout eternity what led God. Education page 15 says that Love is the foundation of creation. Why God created is because He loves. So beholding as in a mirror the glory, the love of God, recognizing that that He delights in fellowship. And all you need to do is look at, at how God walked around on this planet with His disciples. I mean, He could have just had one disciple, but He had 12 to come with Him. He wanted people with Him. He was the one who was eating with publicans and sinners that people said, why do you constantly have to be with people all the time? Don't you know that to be religious is to hold yourself aloof from people? God loves people. He loves interaction. He loves you. 
Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. How does this transformation take place? Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, and then we're transformed by what? What does it say there? Let's read it one more time. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Day by day, the Spirit of God is longing to come into your life, into my life, and to transform our hearts, to rebuild this beautiful image of God in us. The delights in others, the delights in doing good to people, that's all about helping others. Verse 17 of chapter 4 continues, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. God created you for His glory. I want to put a picture up on the screen. I don't want medical professionals to respond who immediately know what this is, but if you're not a medical professional, I want you to, to tell me what this is on the screen. Anybody know what that is? That is a blastocyst. I know, it doesn't sound very exciting. That is an embryo at five days. That is one of Leah and I's potential children. There's three of them, and we want you to pray that God leads and that God who forms and knits in the womb would allow us the privilege of having a child. The process takes time, but God is in the business of creating community, of creating fellowship, and we've totally surrendered this to Him. If this isn't how He chooses to do it, that's okay. But here's the thing. When God in that moment thought about creating, He didn't just think about cells. He didn't just think about bones and heart that He was going to form in Adam. But as He looked, He saw a potential for what 2 Corinthians tells us is an eternal weight of glory. Because he saw in you the potential for relationships to be built. He saw in you the potential for procreation to take place. He saw in you the the potential for his image to be recreated in you so that you could love the way that he's loved you. And as I look at that, I think there's a lot of potential there. There's a future there. Not just because the doctor told us, oh, you're, that's beautiful. I don't know what he's talking about. But I look at that and I say, there's potential for relationship, for love, for our home to be enhanced, for there to be more love. That's the heart of God. He wants to invite you into loving fellowship. And in order for that to take place, we've got to fix our eyes on Jesus And to let him transform our hearts into that same image. Because naturally, we're so unlike that God of love. Last week, I shared with you about this book, Steps to Personal Revival, just briefly, that it gives practical tips for praying for the Holy Spirit. Good news is that today, we have somebody here who could tell us a little bit more of the background of that story, a little bit more of what God did in bringing this to fruition. This book has been a huge blessing to, to many different people. Um, 
I'm looking for a microphone. We're going to have to give you this one. This guy is kind of special to me. This is my dad. And normally I, I have this rule that when he comes to, I don't force him to share, but we got to talking last night and thankfully he's willing to share a little bit of his heart about what God has done in bringing this book and our opportunity to, to read it. Wow. God is amazing, isn't he? Um, I can hardly talk being a grandfather potential here. Huh? <laughs> yeah, we love these guys. I've been praying with them, and I know you're praying for them too. But just to think of the miracles God can work, even today to freeze all these eggs and everything. I mean, how does that work? I don't understand. Somebody else will have to tell me. But I've come to love God so much over the years, and when I think back... Um, when I look at my prayer journals that I've wept over at SoCal camp meeting and other things, the thing I've come to love about God the most is when he does something man can't really take credit for. I love it when he does things that are so not what I did or not what somebody else did. I think SoCal camp meeting is one of those things. It was just happened, you know, it was a miracle from the prayer partners, and we used to pray, and everybody prayed, you know, and stuff happened. Those, those are not something you're going to sit down and strategically plan and put it in a little booklet of strategic plan. You just don't do that. God is too big for that. Um, and I could tell you lots of other stories. But today, he's asked me to share about this book, and let me, I believe with all my heart, and again, I'm not here to promote a book or to sell a book. But I believe the message in this book is something that God of the universe said, Okay, Jerry, you guys missed it, but I'm going to send it viral. It came to the Revival and Reformation Committee, to Janet and me and Melody Mason, in, in uh, February, March of 2015, as a manuscript from a guy in Germany <laughs> who was a businessman, became a preacher for a number of years, now is retired, back to business is now retired, he wrote this book. He sent us a manuscript of it for Revival and Reformation. We're kind of work with that committee at the GC, as you know. And uh, I started reading it. Melody read it. Janet read it some. And it's a little hard to get started in. You know, it's some theology at the beginning about the Holy Spirit. But it is, um, and as we started reading it, I mean, we're three months ahead of general conference session, you know. And we're going, man, we, this, this book needs to be edited some. It needs to be rewritten possibly a little. And we don't have time for that. We'll send it to BRI. We'll let them look at the theology, because it's got theology about that. So we sent it over to BRI, and about six months later, they got it back to us after GC session. <laughs> said, no problem with the theology. You know, some people may have trouble reading it, but... So anyway, gave it to Melody. Could you rewrite it? Could she wrote, you know, daring to ask for more? And could she rewrite it or something? She didn't have time for that, really. So anyway, we let it sit on the shelf. But that's where the story gets good. Because God took it off the shelf in Germany, and it came rumbling back around through Dwight Nelson, having been in 29 languages and downloaded 600,000 times. I love it when I miss things, because I can't take credit. I like that. And this book has affected me. Um, you know, when I read it, I realize, Jerry, this has got stuff in it, as simple, as raw. And this guy's a businessman from Germany. I mean, he writes like, <laughs> Bible, spirit of prophecy, something you say, well, I, that could be worded better, that could be arranged better. But the book is changing lives all over the world. And so, if you got it and you haven't read it yet, I encourage you to do it. It, it talks about how we can overcome sin, 
some of those sins we've never overcome, how we can really surrender, not just talk about surrender, all of it, not leaving this part over here kind of kept from God. And it's so practical and so real and so filled with power. Um, anyway, we, we took it to the R&R committee finally. I think it was, let's see, was it last, last September or spring, I guess it was. Anyway, we told him that story. Elder Wilson had just been given it, and he sent it to everybody in the GC and other places, and it's changing lives all over. Mm-hmm. But the day that we took it to the Revival and Reformation Committee, I shared that story. I said, sometimes we come and report about things we're trying to do, new resources we got on our website and all this, but today I'm telling you something God did without us, and we're so proud of it. Anyway, and it came that day in the committee. Zach had a testimony from somebody he knew, um, and I had him share it. And then uh, Jared Thomas, I don't know if any of you know him, but he's a young pastor who works with us on our communications for ministerial. He told us about his mother. His mother I was raised in a very dysfunctional home. Her dad was abusive in some ways, and she was separated really estranged from him for years and years and years. And uh, she still going to church, still trying to have devotions, doing all this stuff. But then about a year ago, I think she, Jared said, i got to get out to, to Colorado. My mom just tried to commit suicide. And what had happened is her father had finally, after all these years, he was 60, about to die. He'd been impressed by God to uh, apologize to her. And she couldn't handle it. It brought up all this stuff. You know what happens? And so she was not dealing with that well. And she, her life, she said, what am I going to do? I, I got all this bitterness now and resentment. She tried to kill herself. <laughs> anyway, she got a hold of this book. And um, her testimony was just on United in Prayer here a few weeks ago. She got a hold of the book and said, this is what I've been missing. Coming to church, but I haven't been pleading and praying for the baptism of the Holy Spirit every day. And what the Holy Spirit can do to change us. This book talks about it. And again, I'm encouraging you, it's still not edited. <laughs> it's still a little hard to read. Some people will find it that way. But overall, if you just stick with it, by the time you get to chapter 4 and chapter 5, it's talking about what it can do in your life when the Holy Spirit's there every day, every day. And we're asking and pleading. Luke 11 says, plead, ask, persist, and then you will find. Knock, 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 keep on knocking. Anyway, and I want to read to you, um, then it goes on. We, we ended up this uh, January in Japan, and we, we go in um, here, you know, Rwanda and Romania and some of these things. Jan and I usually go in about six months to a year ahead of time and have major area meetings with pastors and lay people and everything, talking about the fact that, yes, we're having a big meeting, so we're going to have TMI, we're doing all these preparations, but if we don't plead and have the Holy Spirit there, you'll get this much. But if you really ask God what he wants to do, amazing things can happen. We saw this happen in Rwanda. We were out of those meetings, and we, we're no special thing, but we were just saying, are you praying? In Rwanda, if you plan a lot of meetings, you can have a bunch of baptisms. We know that. They had set a goal of 60,000. And uh, so we said to them, we don't know. Janet just one day in a meeting said, we don't know what should happen. Maybe God wants you to do some 100,000, something you couldn't do. And they started getting this look in their eyes as evangelism coordinators. We were saying, can you, can you do 60,000 just by having enough meetings? Everybody jumps in the water. That's what you do here. They started saying, yeah, probably. <laughs> they got together in the next few weeks, and they began to pray and plan. And they planned for, they were hoping for 100,000. Laymen got excited. More laymen are doing meetings. They said, we can't do 100,000 on our own. This will take the Holy Spirit. 
When they finished, about six months later, they had 108,000 new people in the church and plans to disciple them, try to keep them. They often lose them in African places. So anyway, we've seen that kind of thing happening. But in January, we went to Japan. If you know anything about Japan, it is the hardest, one of the hardest places in the world except maybe America. It's just it's so secular now. Um, half a percent Christian, and that's all Christians, out of 200 million or something. Adventist Church is dying. It's just very weak there. Everybody's, the average age is 65 or more. The churches, they don't believe they can win anybody. Nobody wants to be a Christian here. So anyway, a lot of us have been praying and working with them, and Elder Wilson and the others just finished meetings over there. And um, during those meetings in January, how long do I have, about half an hour? No. Yeah. No. No, I'm, I'm about done. But in January, um, it ended up that Dwight Nelson was raised as a missionary in Japan until he was 14. So they'd asked him to come over for ministers' meetings. Janet and I were there, and I don't know if you know Ron Clusay and his wife, but they were there as well. It's written the book, Adventist of the Greatest Need. And we've worked with Dwight and Ron for years in prayer conferences. After our testimony, we kind of got going with the prayer conferences. They were there too a lot because we all had the same burden somewhat. Well, we all ended up at the same meeting, and Dwight Nelson uh, texts Janet and I at 5 in the morning and said, you know what, God's had me up for some hours here. And I don't know if you've listened to Dwight in the last year, but Dwight's sermons in the last year have been about this, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And he's in a new journey, a new journey like he's never been on. Dwight's always been one of my favorite preachers. He's a man of God. He preaches the truth. He keeps us relevant. But in the last year, Dwight's changed. He's a new guy, and he says it himself. So he texts us early in the morning. He said, man, I just feel like God's saying, you're here in this nation where you were raised. And you're here with Jerry and Janet and, and Ron Clousset. And he said, Some, we've got our notes. We're thinking what we're going to do at this minister's meeting. But I'm thinking we better be careful. We shouldn't just throw that stuff out and do something else and, and make sure what we're doing. So we started getting together, really pleading and praying. God took the schedule. He changed it. Uh, you know, I was supposed to have the last appeal with the pastors. And we all felt Dwight needed to do that. He speaks Japanese. You know, it's Dwight. And, but we thought, well, he'll make an appeal. We'll get the pastors down front. We'll, we'll make sure that they're on fire to do this. But in the end, the union president said, well, yeah, I was going to kind of do that. <laughs> so anyway, Dwight preached made an appeal. But I said, okay, God's got, we, we prayed about it. He's got the union president doing the last appeal. We said, I hope it goes well. <laughs> that guy got up and gave a testimony from his heart about this whole journey he'd been on. And for the last several couple of months, he had all of a sudden, when he's preaching, couldn't talk, couldn't move, couldn't do anything. And it just happened to him three days before the minister's meeting. Well, in Japan, if you've got vulnerabilities, you don't tell everybody about it. That's, that's Asian culture. So he's here telling all these pastors that he thinks he's going to die soon, possibly. But they have got, they've got to reach out and get these people. They've got to do stuff. And everybody's just listening. You know, it's just a moving. And we were going to try to have the pastors come up and make testimonies and pray together, but he did it and asked them to speak. And down the aisle came rushing this little old man, and he said, I can't believe what's going on here, because we had a time of prayer. I, as we had a time of prayer, we were supposed to share what, what, our, what decisions we'd made during the week. But he came down, he said, I have been praying. He looked at the pastors. He's an elder. He said, I've been praying for you guys for months and months and months. The Holy Spirit, years, he said, I did say years. I've been praying that God would break through with our pastors because the pastors there gave up long ago. They really did. They didn't think it could be done. So anyway, mm-hmm. 
that all happened, uh, I asked Dwight to write out a testimony when he went back of what, what this book had done in his life, because he was sharing stuff there. And uh, it's out in the back, I think the book, if any of you don't have it, plus this testimony. And uh, we put this on the Internet as well. And I'm just going to take the time to read this, and then I'll, I'll quit here. But it says, um, Last August, a young man at the British Columbia camp meeting, where I was preaching, gave me a book. I'd never seen the book before, nor had I ever heard of the author. But the man told me there were over 600,000 copies of the book circulating the world in 29 languages. <laughs> Little did I know, this short book would end up dramatically changing my life. The way I pray, the way I preach, the way I relate to others, it has changed my ministry. In all my years of schooling, preaching, and teaching, nobody ever told me or taught me that the Bible in Ellen White teaches to daily, capitalizes the word daily, daily petition God for a fresh baptism of the Holy Spirit. How could I have gone this far through pastoring and preaching and never learned so compelling a truth? But that's what Helmut Hobbell's book, Steps to Personal Revival, has taught me. By the time I returned home from that camp meeting, I had read the book. In fact, I've now read it four times. And my life has changed. You can ask the woman I live with and the people I pastor. For years I've preached on receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit, series of sermons on this vital theme. But now I've discovered a way to meet with Jesus every morning and do just as he did every morning with the Father. Ask for a fresh baptism of the Holy Spirit. Humbly I testify that God has raised the bar on my prayer life. I used to spend much time in the Word and a comparatively short time in actual prayer. Now my practice is reversed. I spend much time on my knees in my early morning prayer closet in communion with God and then turn to His Word for His communication with me. My preaching has gained a new freedom and intensity. I can tell you that's true. My leadership with my team and my people has been raised to another level. I saw that. Dwight is a little different to be around now than he was. He was always so high-powered, so planned, so, so smooth. But now he's just so humble, falling into the background, wanting others on his team to come front, I believe. It's as if someone is orchestrating my days and nights, my chance meetings and emails and conversations. It's as if the Holy Spirit is personally directing my waking hours, even my sleeping ones. In fact... I've come to know him as a very personal and truly dear friend. Um, I missed something here. He said, suddenly coincidences, what one writer calls synchronicity, are multiplying. It's as if someone is orchestrating my days and nights, my chance meetings and emails and conversations. I think that's what the baptism of the Spirit should be for me every day. Yeah. Why am I telling you this? I have nothing to gain from this testimony, but I'm deeply convicted that you do. Jesus is coming soon. We still have a world, an entire generation, to reach with the everlasting gospel. We simply cannot accomplish that mission on our own. Our only hope is to learn what Jesus knew, to practice what Paul and the first disciples lived. We must have the daily baptism of the Holy Spirit upon our lives and ministry. The only way we will have it is if we humbly daily ask for it. I don't know who you are, but I'm praying for you as I write this. The promised gift is yours and mine for the asking. After all, didn't Jesus promise us, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who, Greek, daily, continually ask him, Luke eleven thirteen? Won't you join me in that daily asking? Um, Mark Finley, we asked him recently to give us a, an update on what he thought we really needed at this point in the Revival and Reformation journey. He gave us seven questions. I won't go through them all now. But one of them is, 
why is it, Lord, I have the same sins popping up over and over and over again after all these years? Where's the victory I preach about for other people? You can have victory over the Sabbath, victory over sin, over drugs. Where's the victory in my life over these things? I'm convinced myself, and you read this book in chapter 4, it talks about how if we truly will ask the Holy Spirit to take over, He will give us repentance we've never been able to have. He will change our very desires. He will make it different. We know that, we talk about it, but I'm feeling I need to do that all the time, all during the day, and ask much more, and really it is a message for us. So anyway, if you haven't read the book, I hope you will, but it's not about the book. I really believe it's about the message of prayer for the Holy Spirit. Janet and I, if you've heard Janet's testimony, um, we were in Pennsylvania. I was 36, elected as president. Very successful young minister. But I didn't know my wife had died spiritually right by my side. Not very successful, brother. And, um, but people at that camp meeting went through some seminars and determined they were going to pray at 6.15 every morning for this new president couple, for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I came up and started telling her that, and she didn't think it would make any difference. She'd given up. She'd tried, gotten close, but just couldn't get it going, as we heard. But anyway, in the next two years in Pennsylvania, members all over the conference were praying for us to have the baptism of the Spirit. And her life was dramatically turned around, turned my life around, changed us. And we sure got a lot of mess yet going on in our lives. But we're different than we were, and she's sure different. So I believe the key is pleading and asking for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Then all the other changes of what we want to do, and changes of not surrendering and holding something back all the time, I think that's what we need for this last great thrust. And the reason God took the book and said, you won't do it, I'll do it, and took it around the world as he did, is because the message is what we need to finish this thing and go home. So anyway, thank you for giving me a little time to share that. Thank you for sharing. The inward man. God wants to renew you day by day. He wants to recreate that image that is love, that is God, that is fellowship, that he wants to invite us in. Father, I desire that those whom you have given me may be with me where I am. That's the heart of Jesus, that we can see his glory, the glory of the love that they have shared throughout eternity, that he can share that with you and I. This book is not capable of changing your life, but Jesus is. Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, you can be transformed from glory to glory by the Spirit of the Lord. If it's your desire to just fix your eyes on Jesus and to daily ask for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I just want to invite you to stand with me as we, as we close. As you go out, there's a table by the windows that you're welcome to grab a book. There's also on this sheet, it tells how you can get the audio version of this uh, that's easy to listen to. But let's join them. Let's join Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in that delightful fellowship of love. Father in heaven, forgive me for the inadequacy of words. God, you are so beautiful. You are so wonderful. Thank you for creating us that we could live and breathe your glory, which is to share in the delightful love that you've been wanting to give us. Lord, forgive us for holding back, for hardening our hearts. Today, we just want to begin daily surrendering to your wonderful love, asking you to fill us with more and more of the Holy Spirit. We want the same story to be true of us, 
It can be true for Dwight Nelson after preaching for 30 years that his wife and his congregation know that he's a different person. Father, we want people around us to see the image of God being recreated, renewed day by day. Would you transform our hearts, I pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen.